0: I would normally start off a message bump uh, video with something amusing or humorous or interesting. That was not the first two, but I think it is the last. Uh, Interesting. Um, You probably figured it out that it's not too amusing. Uh, It highlights, however, the human drive, the need for freedom in order to flourish. In an earlier message, we spoke about the need for light and discovered that Jesus proclaims himself to be the light of the world. Today, Jesus highlights that he is the author of true freedom. By the way, um, I'm not sure we had the actual passage right. If you have your Bibles or apps, is uh, John 8, verses 30, 31 to 37. We'll read those in a minute to catch you up. Um, many places on earth flourishing in freedom is lacking. Uh, when you are sold by your dad as a 14-year-old to be the wife of someone you don't love and maybe never have even met, you are, as the video showed, crushed in places you never knew you had. And few places on earth rival the lack of freedom found in North Korea. But also I wanted to experience, to feel that just, just for three minutes, the whole eight-minute video is just almost unbearable. So I hope you're interested in what Jesus has to say to us today on the subject, topic, of freedom. Because he's going to highlight that most of the world is North Korea-like, lacking in the freedom that matters most. So let me pray for us, and we'll get to it. Okay, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you've given it to us so we can open it up, we can read it, we can understand it. We can apply it, and we can live freely. We ask you to touch our hearts, touch our minds, touch our wills and emotions. May we be changed when we walk out of this place this morning. Well, we're in John chapter 8. Let me uh, tell you that last week, if you were not here, we did a message on the worst way and the best way to live or to die. Today's kind of a follow-up, not a sequel, just a follow-up to that. We're going to talk about the best way to live and the worst way to live. So starting at verse 31, let me just read these verses for you, you, uh, get them etched in your minds.
1: So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him,
0: If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free.
1: They answered him,
0: We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anybody. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Freedom's a powerful word, would we agree? Uh, It's an even more powerful reality. Nations have gone to war over freedom. People who will risk everything to find it. Our nation was built upon it, right? July 4th, 1776, 56 men signed a declaration of independence. Among other things, they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among those are life, Liberty, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. And we've always believed that that's the best way to live in our country. But as you look around, the practice of freedom here has kind of devolved to this. I think we believe in our country that the best way to live, most people do, the freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, and with whomever we want to do it. And here's the tragedy. And it's a sad one. We live in a country filled with people that enjoy political freedom, at the same time are spiritually enslaved. Which means, according to Jesus, they really don't enjoy true freedom. So the best life is actually a matter of perspective. And perspective is just what Jesus gives us in this paragraph, divine perspective. What is the best way? What's the worst way to live? So let's start with the fun part, the best way to live. In verse 31, and on down, I'll sum it up for you. The best way to live your life is in the freedom of genuine discipleship under Jesus Christ. Stated another way, if you are truly an authentic pursuer of the Lord Jesus Christ, best way to live. I do happen to believe that with all my heart. Now, there are a few stages to that freedom. And thankfully, Jesus has kind of laid it all out for us in this passage. And I'll just sort of lay out for you what he's kind of talking about. Three stages in experiencing freedom. Believing in Christ, continuing in Christ's word, and then knowing the truth. All three steps go together to find the spiritual freedom Jesus promises. So let's start with the first, believing in Christ. To get the flow, let's read verse 30, which is the verse right before the one we just read. And they we'll continue on to the first verse this morning. It says, As Jesus was saying these things, which we talked about last week, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, So stop right there and ponder. Because I don't know about you, but for me, kind of faced a little bit of a problem. Jesus says he's addressing believers. They believed him or believed in him. And I say it's a little bit of a problem because Jesus has just told them, you're trying to kill me. (laughs) So what kind of a believer in Jesus wants to kill Jesus? What kind of a believer is that? Moreover, as the conversation continues, as we'll see, Jesus will say to the same group, you are of your father, the devil. We'll save that for next week. So what kind of a believer is that? That's why he said, Houston, we got a problem. Now we could try to solve the problem, by arguing that verse 30 and 31 say that a bunch of people believed in Jesus, but it was kind of a shallow, superficial kind of faith. Or we could say, well, maybe we're dealing with two separate groups of people in those two verses. Verse 30 is one group, verse 31 is another group. I tend to go there because John typically uses the term the Jews to describe the Jewish religious leaders who have, uh, let's say they're hostile, towards him. So to play this out, I hope you notice that in verse 30 we're told that Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. They believed in him or in the King James believed on him. They leaned completely on him. That's genuine belief we read about back in John 1. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that could be group one in verse 30. But notice verse 31. It doesn't say they believed in him. It just says, Jesus said to the Jews who believed him. In isn't there. Those Jews believed him. In other words, maybe they only accepted some of the stuff he said. They didn't actually accept him for who he really was. They liked some of the stuff he said, some of the stuff they heard. But it wasn't necessarily the kind of faith in him that would save them. Maybe they went, hmm, that, that sounds pretty good, that sounds reasonable. I think I might believe that. Leon Morris, one of my favorite biblical scholars, has a helpful note in his commentary on this passage in his Gospel of. Uh, Of John Commentary. He says this, The Jews in this section is addressed to those who believe and yet do not believe in. They were inclined to think that what Jesus said was true, but not prepared to yield to him the far-reaching allegiance that real trust implies. So, first step to freedom, believing in Christ. But not all belief, right? Not all faith is saving faith. I mean, Jesus has already Taught us, right, this kind of stuff. Uh, to remind you, James, the brother of Jesus, said this. Hey, look, the devils believe, and they shudder. I mean, they're terrified. But have they committed themselves to Christ? No, no, they're still hanging on for dear life under their, their boss, Satan. Back in John chapter 2, we're told that many believed Jesus when they saw all the signs he was performing, all the miracles. It said that Jesus would not commit himself to them. They think they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. So they were false believers. Jesus also kind of describes this belief in a parable. He said, this kind of belief might be like this, uh, the seeds that are sown on rocky soil. They receive the word, they seem to be joyful about it, but they've got no roots. They believe for a little while, but then troubles come up, issues come up, and they fall away in short order. It's no wonder that Paul recommends to people who claim to be Christians, test yourself and see whether you are in the faith. Do some examination. So maybe we should do a little of that this morning. Let there be a little self-examination. Are you an authentic, true believer? Like Morris says, in possession of a far-reaching allegiance of real trust in Jesus. That's the first step. We might have called Abraham Lincoln the great emancipator, but Jesus Christ is the greatest emancipator. And the way that he sets people free begins with their initial point of contact with him, believing in him, leaning completely on him, entrusting their lives over to him. First step. Second step. And then we start getting interesting. Continuing in God's word, Christ's word. Here's how this falls out in this verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If... You abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. If you do that, you're truly my disciples. That's kind of a characteristic, we'll know. Something you're going to discover about John. John absolutely loves the word abide. He peppers it all through his writings. Gospel of John, 1 John, Second John, those two epistles. In fact, the New Testament only uses that word 34 times. John himself uses it 31 of those times. He only leaves three of them for the other, other writers, right? Now, to be fair... Jesus is the one who uses it first. So what does abide mean? simply means to remain in or to continue on in something. And Jesus said, if you do that, abide. If you are continuing on, remaining in my word, we can think of it this way. An abode is an edifice, right, in which you abide, right? You abide in an abode. To abide there means that you are living within the walls of, of that, of that edifice, that abode. Apply this into what Jesus just said. If you abide in the abode of his word, if you live within the structure, the boundaries, the truth of his word, well, then you are truly his disciples. Then you're the real deal. Then you are authentic followers. So here's the point.
1: Real disciples
0: are people committed to continuing on in the hearing of and understanding of and applying of Jesus' words. Now we remember, don't we, how John begins his gospel? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. <clears throat> wonder who the he is. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. <clears throat> and then there's some stuff about John the Baptist there's some more stuff about the word, the light, how it came to the world that, that he had made, and uh, his people didn't receive him. Uh, they rejected him, but then in verse 12, But all who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, aha, and dwelt among us. So the word of God is identified here as Jesus Christ. And when we open our Bibles, Old and New Testament what you have is what the Godhead has communicated to us humans, and the mechanism that the Godhead used was the word uttered by Christ. And in those words, we find that Jesus is the one who offers freedom. So, first step to freedom, believing in. You make initial contact, but you can't stop there. You don't stop with a raised hand. You don't stop with tears running down your face. You don't stop with coming forward and saying a prayer. That's just the beginning. You don't stop there. You now continue. It's what Eugene Peterson referred to as a long obedience in the same direction. Isn't that a cool thought? Long obedience in the same direction. Now, I know some pastors don't like to talk about personal stuff, but I think sometimes personal stuff matters. Here's how this went down for Jackie and me. When we came out to Virginia in 1975... We did not have much Bible instruction. Church I went to in Southern Indiana basically did the gospel every single week, and never much depth beyond that. Big on altar calls, not so big on growing people up as mature Christians. Jackie's church in town not even that good. So we knew pretty much nothing except that we were saved. I got saved in the Sunday school class when I was 12 years old. The one-all baptism class I mentioned that before. Jackie, I think I mentioned that too. Got saved at a high school, at our high school, which had a citywide revival. Can you imagine that happening in Fairfax County these days? Major high school, week-long revival. Yeah, that's going to happen. Not here. Man, when we got to Virginia, we started going to a Methodist church, which didn't even believe in giving the gospel. They figured, hey, if you show up here, you must already be saved. We don't want to embarrass you or make you feel bad by giving you the gospel. But in that little church in Herndon, God drew six couples together, and we just decided, what if we started reading our Bibles? Then we started praying together. We couldn't do it at the church, and I kid you not. The pastor said if we had a prayer group at the church, he would feel obligated to come, and he didn't want to, so we had to do it somewhere else. So we started meeting in our homes, and seriously, we were just groping around like blind people. We'd even watch charlatans on the TV trying to learn something. Then we'd sit down with the scriptures they used and sort of puzzle over them to see if that's what the Word of God really said. We were just hungering and thirsting to understand God's Word and to have these other six uh, couples, uh, five couples with us, it was just amazing. Well, God eventually took pity on us. One of the guys in our little group was a handyman, and he was doing a home project for someone in the neighborhood. And that couple ended up giving him a cassette tape of a Sunday message at their church. So he listened to it. He was mesmerized. He grabbed his wife, Dana. They listened to it. They were both mesmerized. They called us up and said, you guys got to hear this. You guys got to hear this. And we went over there in the middle of the week. And he got that cassette cassette playing and we were just dumbfounded. We devoured it. And then he got a cassette tape from this couple every single week. We would drag our kids over, 10 o'clock at night, put them down. We'd, we'd be there until 3 o'clock in the morning. It was amazing. Uh, we thought we died and went to heaven. Hearing the word of God being taught was like air to a bunch of drowning people. We got together multiple times a week for fellowship, prayer, reading scripture, and we were so pumped. And we wanted to see revival take place in our little church, right? But it turns out that in the church, it was just we six couples that were interested in that. So God led us all out to a church called Rest and Bible Church where we were affectionately known for 20 plus years that we all went there as the Methodist Exodus. We absolutely loved digging into God's word. We brought our Bibles. We all take notes on Sundays. Then we get together Sunday nights, compare notes, share insights, takeaways, all designed to make sure none of us in the group missed anything. But we were just getting started on the long obedience in the same way direction. By the way, you know what disciple literally means? The Greek word literally means nothing more than learner. Learner. Question, does that describe you? Are you in a perpetual learning God's word mode? Are you in a learning mode? Is your life still wide open? And it's like, okay, God, tell me more. I need to know more. I know I want to know more of you. I want to know more of what you want me to do. I want to learn. I want to learn. Show me more of you. Or are you the type where you just sort of you know maybe stop learning? Oh, I'm I'm pretty mature now. I've got basically stuff figured out. I, I know everything there is I need to know. Uh, you really can't tell me anything new. Well, that's a shame because real learners is what Jesus is talking about here. Authentic disciples are those who continue on, remain in, abide in the mode of learning God's word. Listen, I know some of you hearken from other brands of Christianity. Where you were told, don't be bothered, don't bother yourself trying to read scripture. Don't even don't even open the book. You, you don't have the skills. You don't have the training. Here's what we'll do for you. We're the pastors or the priests or whatever title they make up. We'll study God's word for you, and then we'll tell you what it says that you need to know. Now listen, do you see how this plan actually violates what Jesus specifically gave as instructions to believers in this passage? We are told to personally believe in Jesus Christ. You don't get there, as John 1 says, through blood or your family line or through your will or efforts or through the will or efforts of any other pastor or human being or anything else. You don't get it through your church membership, through sacraments, through baptism, communion. You don't get it through your good works or your good efforts. You are personally to believe in Jesus Christ Trust your life to him and dig into what he says in his word. Secondly, that's it. That's the second thing. Personally abide in, continue on thirsting for, in hearing and understanding, grasping and applying God's word in an ever-expanding way to your personal life. And you ain't doing that. If you're depending on someone else to do your learning for you and to feed it to you in a baby bottle. That's why... In my dream world, I know it's just a dream world, you all would have your Bibles here on Sundays. You would have notepads to write things down. You would then cogitate on what you heard and wrote down and use your ever more capable discernment to tell whether what I or E or anybody standing behind this stand or a pulpit or anything else is teaching. Is it straight up truth or not? Jesus wants you and me as followers to do your own abiding, your own continuing in God's Word, and you're never going to finish. Never going to finish as long as you're breathing air on this planet. I think the abiding will continue unabated forever in eternity as we unpack the never-ending mysteries and majesties of our God. So ask yourself a couple of questions. How often do I read the Bible? Personally, not just at church, not on the screen necessarily, where you crack it open and you read through it. Second question, how often do you actually think about what you just read?
1: Where you don't just read it, but you actually
0: take a little chunk, break it down, ask what it means. How is that related to the next thing, to the last thing? You know, how does it apply to my life? Where you're actually chewing on a section, meditating on it, do your own Bible study, right? Do you want a copy that you write in? Or that you journal because of things that you see in the Bible. All those are important things in continue. Listen, if you come across something you want to know, is there a good commentary out there, maybe I use or E uses, give us a call. We'll be happy to tell you. Uh, where there's a Bible commentary on whatever you're reading that is written by someone who actually believes that the Bible is God's word, there's a lot of people out there writing commentaries that don't believe that. So you know, we'll help you avoid wasting your money. Okay, so best way to live: step three, knowing truth, God's word, believing, continuing, knowing. This is where you don't just continue and learn stuff. Now, now you are learning truth. You are developing deep convictions as a result of that learning that become guiding principles in your life, because truth leads to change. What you really believe will affect what you do, right? If you don't believe the airplane is safe to get on, you will not get on the airplane. If you believe the airplane will get you to your destination, you will get on the airplane. See, belief matters. It affects behavior. And here's why believing what truth is is a good thing. Because you and I are programmed, almost pre-programmed from the womb, thanks to the sin nature we all inherit, to get suckered into believing the lies of God's enemy. And the truth of God is set against those lies, corrects those lies that we fall prey to. Truth takes aim at those lies. Why? Because those lies enslave us. And truth is designed to set us free. So, how about I try to go for a sort of simple explanation. Uh, I have taught a whole bunch of Financial Peace University classes over the last decade or so, Uh, Many of the folks who attended those classes would have described themselves as hopelessly in debt. Just that, you know, no way to imagine that they could possibly be debt-free. So let's just play a little here. Um, I was in another church as an elder, and the other church was considering buying a piece of property to put a church building on. And it was going to cost them millions, millions of dollars to buy this property. And so I said, well, as an elder, I'll just go through Scripture and see if I can find anything the Bible has to say about about money and debt. And I could not find in the Old Testament or New Testament any verse, any passage that advocated anything good about going into debt. So I present my findings to the board, contending that if we just took the money we would plan to have to spend on debt servicing and just put that aside each year, just go ahead and put it aside Within six years, we would have all the money in cash we could use to spend on buying a piece of property and a building put up on it, cash with cash. In the end, the leadership decided to go into debt, millions anyway. In my truth, in my view, truth lost out to man's desires. So let's bring it down to you and me. Let's say you have some student debt. Let's say you want a home and you have a house payment. Let's say you have a car and are making car payments. Let's say you have credit cards and you are basically making minimum payments on some of them. You don't pay them off every single month. You have debts maybe you've taken on for your children or somebody owes a friend. Maybe you have medical debts you can't pay. So if that's you, let's go into an imaginary world right now. Imagine the world right now in this very instant where you find yourself completely, and I mean completely, debt-free. Can you imagine that being a reality? Got that in your mind? Everything you have, everything paid off. How would it feel? How would it feel?
1: No house payment, no
0: car payment, no student loans, no college credit, no debt, no credit card, all completely paid off. Would you not feel that you had just been released from a life sentence in a maximum security prison? Yes, you would. Yes, I would. And yes, I did. Not boasting here, folks. I'm simply saying that Jack and I believed the words of Jesus, that's not a good thing. And as we continued to grow in God's word, we became convicted that there's truth there that we were ignoring, that could free us up. And we decided, as impossible as it seemed, to apply our personal lives to this issue. One income, three children, working under a government job, not going to get rich doing that, right? But while tithing, we paid off every single debt. And when that happened, can I just tell you something? Freedom was incredible, amazing. And listen, what I want to tell you is that that is just one example of how, if you know the truth, the truth applied can set you free. Now, just imagine that happening, not just on the death front, but in every other area of your life, knowing truth and following it in your dating relationship following it in your marriage relationships, following it in raising your kids' stuff, following it in everything that you say and everything that you do in your job, in your neighborhood. If you pursue knowing truth and applying it, Jesus is saying you can have that kind of elation, that kind of lifting of a burden, that kind of freedom in Christ that will blow not only you, but all those who watch you completely away. Jesus, John 8.32, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you realize how foreign that verse sounds in our postmodern, post-Christian era? Because in our day and age, any search for absolute truth has been totally abandoned. And worse, ridiculed. That's why we call little boys' girls and little girls' boys. Do a DNA test, science proves the otherwise. Okay, but we believe it to be true. Yet we're ridiculed if we speak the truth. Listen, about the only thing that these postmodernists are certain about is that nothing is certain. That's their one truth, that they believe. Nothing is absolutely certain. Highest virtue of any person living today, the thing that will get you straight out of your college tests on the world's report card, is to say that everything is okay. I'm okay, you're okay, nothing's really wrong. Agreeing with everything is right. But if you want to flunk the world's evaluation of you as a Christian, just say this, I know the truth. (laughs) Oh, man. How pitiful for you. So pitiful that you're as ignorant as you are as to say, I know the truth. But Jesus said, You will know the truth. And it will set you free. Now, I'd just like to say that that's the thinking of the world out there around us, but it's even crept into the church. Newsweek did a report not that long ago, that said that 85% of American Christians, and they will throw anything that calls itself a Christian, cults and everything else in that but they'll say 85% of Christians believe that there are other ways to heaven than Jesus Christ. 85%! you believe that? Oh, I'm a Christian, but, you know, it's good for me, Jesus is good for me, but, you know, there are lots of different ways. Truth? There's one way. Jesus himself did not say, I'm away, I'm away, I can be away. No, he said, and being God, maybe, maybe being God, he knows the truth. I don't know, I'm just thinking that might be the connection there. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself narrows it down in verse 32. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. One of the most famous verses in Scripture. You know that on the great walls of universities, In universities and buildings, government buildings, this verse is often used, put on the many of them. Sometimes it's a whole verse, sometimes it's just the the truth will set you free part. Here's an example at uh, Victoria College up in Toronto. You know what they mean by it? They mean that, well, if you attend our college, we'll give you some information, we'll give you some facts, we'll give you some details that will produce freeing freedom in your life. Get degrees. This, this degree we're going to give you is going to set you free. Now, I'm kind of totally surprised that they would even dare to put that on their buildings because they ought to know better. Every college professor should know that you can't take a text out of its context. In fact, there's a little saying. I may have actually learned it in college that said this. Any text divorced from the context can become a pretext, which is a false premise. Jesus is not speaking here in the Scripture about academic knowledge or acquiring facts. He's speaking specifically of the knowledge about himself, his words. That's what's liberating. How do I know that? Well, compare two verses that are complementary. John 8.32, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. John thirty six, four verses later, so if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You get that? It ain't about acquiring an academic information or degree. He's talking about spiritual liberation. Liberation, that's what he's talking about. And it comes through and exclusively through him. Don't get me wrong, not against college degrees, got two of them, right? But too often, what they produce are people armed with information, not character. Enslaved by sin, not freedom in Christ. And they've been conned into believing that they somehow have arrived. By the way, good moment to pause and compare the difference between religion and Jesus. You may have come out of some religion. If so, you're probably found it very restrictive, maybe very legalistic, maybe rules-oriented. It's always about the rules. When I stepped into Christ, first thing that struck me was, "Man, this is liberating. It's about a relationship with Him, not about some legalistic set of laws." So here's how it works: You put your faith in Jesus. You believe in Him. You trust in Him. You hand your life over. You don't do it all at once, of course. That's what I found. You don't give your whole life over. You give the parts you think you want to give over to. But then over time, you get more confident in giving more of it over. But as you do that, as you do that originally, you're instantly freed from the penalty of sin. Instantly. But then you stick with it, right? You remain in it. You continue on with it, and you learn. And as you learn, you learn about God. You learn about humanity. You learn about yourself. You learn about marriage. You learn about how to do business. And the more you learn and the more you continue, then you come to know certain things that become deep-seated, unshakable convictions that form in your heart, these guiding life principles. And you find yourself being freed from the power and the grip of sin in those other areas. Not just the penalty, but the power of the sin, the grip of it. And then there's, I just think there's more and more and more levels, that's been my experience in life, to that freedom. So I'll tell you right now. Whatever level you are right now as a Christian, you've got to know this. There are more levels. There are more levels of freedom to experience. There's higher growth to go to. There's more things that Jesus wants to free you up from and for. More things to know. So we continue in his word. We do that. And you'll find that you're going to find that there's certain things that you will growing to start doing. And certain things you're going to grow to stop doing. Old habits and practices. Just sort of give way to new ones where your freedom expands. Why? Because once you've experienced the freedom, the elation of freedom in that area, you don't ever want to get back in to it again. You want to, get, you want to stay free. And so it begins to change the behavior. It begins to change what you want to do, not because you're forced to, not because God said, do this, do this, do this. No, it's like, hey, this is for my own good. Look, look what's happening in my life. I have sensed that I'm being freed. So authentic disciples are those who continue to learn, and they form these life convictions called knowing, that we step more and more and more and more into freedom as we continue to learn. We are word-oriented. Jesus quoting Deuteronomy said this, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul said in Colossians, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Don't be a, don't be a, don't be a pauper. These <laughs> aren't verses given to preachers. I mean, yeah. Preachers can but it's given to followers, disciples, learners. That's how we know the truth. We abide so that we know that's the best way to live, being an authentic disciple of Christ. You believe in him, you remain, you learn, you grow, and with that knowledge comes the ability to be freer and freer and freer and freer and freer. Best way to live. Best way to live, hands down. But <clears throat> there is an alternative, and you, you are free to opt for that if you choose. I th- happen to think it's the worst way to live. It's in the slavery of a sinful lifestyle, starting in verse 33. They answered him, the Jews, We're all spring of Abraham and never been enslaved to anybody. Just, just, just hold on to that little thought for a second as we move on. Just kind of keep that in your memory. How is it that you say you, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly. And we know this already, right? You've been here before. Anytime Jesus says truly, truly, it's a signal that this is something you've got to pay attention to. This is going to be on the final exam. You don't want to miss it. I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house. Forever the sun remains. So if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, in our country, the United States, we know some things about slavery. One of the blots on our historical record. If you look back when there were like a million plus, I think, maybe, what is it? Was a 12 million slaves that came out of Africa. We took 650,000 of them here in America. And because of that, we've learned to hate slavery, rightfully so, and to love freedom, rightfully so. But the Jews also knew something about slavery. Here's the difference. They themselves had been slaves. They'd been in bondage for much of their entire history. When they became a nation in Egypt, they grew and grew and grew. Pharaohs got upset because, well, these are people who are a threat, so let's enslave them. That happened 400 years there. There were slaves um, to the Assyrians, slaves to the... Uh, uh, Persians, slaves to the Greeks, slaves to the Romans, all that stuff. Given their history, where did the people in this passage come off saying, we've never been in bondage to anybody? I mean, when weren't they in bondage? Okay, David's reign, Solomon's maybe, but other than that, even when their judges were around, they were constantly being oppressed by all the nations around them. So I think this is just classic denial. It's like talking to an alcoholic who's uh, you're trying to intervene, and they go, I can stop anytime time I want to. Well, maybe not. Maybe a classic denial. So, what did the Jews mean when they said this? They simply meant this. We may have, may have, we, we may have been in political bondage, but we've never been in spiritual bondage. Why? Because we're descendants of Abraham. We're the chosen race. We're the Jewish people. And because we are, we're automatically children of God and headed straight to heaven. Do not pass, go, and not collect $200, just go. You're going right there. That's what they thought
1: because that's what they'd
0: been taught. Rabbi Yekipus said this, even the poor, this is interesting because in Jewish world, if you were poor, you were considered to be a really scumbag person who'd done a lot of sin, and that's why you're poor. Your poverty was a result of you being a scumbag. So that they had a misinterpretation of how that happened. But anyway, is said, even the poor, the lowest of the low, could be proud that they were sons of the kings because they were sons of the patriarchs. We have Abraham as our father. We've never been a slave to anyone. And Jesus answers that and says to them, listen, the worst form of slavery being in Egypt for 400 years. It's not being in Babylon for 70 years. Worst form of slavery is when you have, uh, sin has a grip on your life and you can't get out of it. You're enslaved to sin, worst way to live.
1: See, a slave isn't his own master, right?
0: He's owned and controlled by someone else. He cannot quit. He can't say, "I do not like you as a master. I quit." <laughs> no, he can't do that. He has no option. Unable to free himself, gripped by the power of the slavery of sin. It's why many criminals who are paroled or pardoned end up going right back to the crimes that got them in trouble to begin with. It's become such a gripping lifestyle. It's unshakable. Maybe you heard New York Mayor, New York City Mayor, Abram Abrams, just last week, lamenting all the criminals running around the streets of New York who commit crimes, get arrested, immediately get released, and go back out to the street like hardly, hardly missing a beat and committing the crimes all over and over again. Just a, just a cycle of just people arresting the same people over and over and over and over and over. He says, we've got to stop this nonsense. One of the best illustrations I ever heard about the power of sin was from a radio personality, some of you may have heard of, Paul Harvey. He had a thing called uh, the rest of the story. Uh, he had a great illustration about how an Eskimo kills a wolf I thought you might enjoy this, unless you're you're a wolf. It says this. First, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood, and he allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood, and another, and another, and another, and another, and another, until the blade is completely concealed by the frozen blood. Next, the hunter affixes the knife in the ground with the blade up. When the wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the smell... He discovers the bait, he starts licking it, tasting the fresh, frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade up until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade until the arctic night, so great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue, or that his thirst is now being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more and more and more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. Sin is just like that. It tastes good. It really does. Doesn't the Bible say that it tastes good? It's pleasurable. Even the Bible acknowledges that. For a season, there is an allure to it. But it reaches those tentacles out and grips and becomes tighter and tighter, and it can absolutely destroy a life. The worst way to live under its grip.
1: Now, I'm going to say something that my English teacher would probably have kicked me out of class for.
0: That's the worst way to live, but you know, there's a way you can make the worst, worser. It's when you are under grip of sin and you have a hardened heart. You don't listen to anybody's advice. You don't open the door to any good spiritual counsel. You just have a hardened heart. Look at verse 37 and we'll close. I know your offspring of Abraham and let you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. These guys' hearts are so hardened. They just reject every single thing that Jesus has been saying whenever he says it. It doesn't matter what he says. You know the type? As soon as you even mention the gospel of Jesus Christ or Jesus, they immediately are turned off. They don't want to hear it. Some people sitting in churches today are, frankly, that type. They've learned so well the art of deflecting the truth that they sort of take pride in being impenetrable, right? They're so good at being hard they can hear the whole truth and be like, eh, whatever. No conviction, no remorse, no sense of need, not willing to change. Listen, it doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. If you can he- even hear the faintest call of Christ speaking to you this morning, your life can be different. Maybe one time the call was really loud and clear, but you become so good at kind of rebuffing it that right now it's just like so far away. But even if you hear it far away, it's not too late. It's not too late. So indulge me for a moment. I just want to finish up here. Verse 35 and 6.
1: The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains. So if the son sets
0: you free, you'll be free indeed. They understood this analogy 2,000 years ago. When there were slaves in households, slaves had no rights. right? Sons did. The sons were the heirs and would get the inheritance. Slaves could be booted out any time. So in this scenario, Jesus is the son of the father. He's the inheritor of the kingdom. And what he is simply saying is this. Only the son can free a slave of sin. You can't do it on your own. Only Jesus can. And when Jesus sets a slave free, you know what he does? He turns that slave into a family member. We become adopted, the Bible says. Into his family, you become a son of God, a daughter of God. Only the son can do that. If the son sets you free, You'll be free, indeed. It doesn't say if somebody else sets you free; it only be the Son. So the best way to live: freedom of genuine discipleship, learning, hearing, continuing, growing, knowing. Worst way to live: worst way to live, bound by the sin, the slavery of it, with truth unable to penetrate your heart. Worst way to live. Worst way to live. It's also the worst way to die. As we talked last week. So, final word. I'm speaking to some believers. You love Jesus, right? You're committed. You've committed yourself to Christ, it's a given, but you're still struggling in certain areas of your life. They seem to have a tighter grip on you than other things, and you've been trying to break free of that for a long time. I understand it, right? It's almost like the little girl who falls out of bed. She was two or three years old. She hits the floor, screams out, Mom rushes in, picks her up, puts her back in bed, and says, honey, how'd how'd you come to fall out of bed? The daughter says, I don't know, Mommy. I think maybe I stayed too close to where I got in. You know what I'm getting at? A lot of people commit themselves to Jesus, but they stay so close to the world, as close as they can possibly get, instead of being as close as they can get to Jesus. Where if they just believe and keep on growing, can keep on in being in the Word, keep on knowing truth, and then applying truth, they would experience greater and greater freedom. They'd be snuggled up in the middle of the bed, not on the edge. If that's you as a Christian, there's a better way, a better way to live. And and I will just tell you from personal experience, if you try it, you will definitely be thanking Jesus for this truth downstream. Let me pray for us. We'll get you out of here. By the way, isn't it great to have air conditioning in this building today? So thank you, State Theater. God, thank you for this time that we have today. Thank you for the truth here. These are These are awesome truths. Who doesn't want to be free? Who doesn't want more freedom? know, our world, pants for more freedom, but it's usually in the sin area. How about we pant for freedom under you? That we can have real life. That we can have elation after elation as we give ourselves more and more to the things that are true that don't hurt, that don't break us down, that don't maul us, don't chew us up and spit us out. Um, so we get, we make, maybe we make a new re, uh, commit this morning to renew ourselves to this abiding. If we're yours already, maybe we're just not being that serious. Maybe we're so busy doing all the other things in life that we're, not, we're just sitting on the edge of this. Snuggled, not in the middle of the bed, but just on the edge, all about to fall out all the time. Help us to get in the middle. Help us to have that experience of being warm and snugly with you and then giving you the freedom to free us. So as we take communion, this all happened because you came out of love for us that we did not deserve. You came when we were scumbags, right? You came and you died for us. So as we take communion, it was your body and your blood given for us that makes it possible given your resurrection, your payment for our sin, and your showing that you proved victorious over death, sin, hell, and the grave, you can make us the son and daughter of you. And so we thank you for it. We rejoice in it. Now help us to live it out this week, in Jesus' name. Amen.